The roar of the crowd was like music to Randall Woodfield's ears. Just as those Friday night lights where the fans' adoration fueled his ego as he caught the football midair, and then his magnus opus as he pumped his legs toward the promised land, Portland State University's end zone, the moment he lived for, being the center of attention when all eyes were on Randy as he dashed across the football field. Touchdown. <sighs> Fans went wild. Strutting off the field was good for Randy, too. He loved showing off his body. Six feet tall with a trim athletic frame, sculpted muscles, chiseled good looks with thick curly black hair and brown eyes. The year was 1974, and it wasn't long before NFL talent scouts would come to watch Randy on the field. The scout would gush, sitting next to the Portland State University coach. Randy was quite a jumper, and boy, he could cut on a dime. Randy's coach agreed, but would point out what he considered to be a glaring deficiency. Randy avoided getting hit. He didn't like to feel pain. There was something else about Randy that the Green Bay Packers scout wasn't aware of, a closely guarded secret. Later, a detective in Wisconsin would say, he just couldn't keep it in his pants. He was referring to the multiple arrests in Wisconsin for indecent exposure. These incidents would ultimately lead to Woodfields being cut from the team without ever playing a game. Looking back, that rejection could just have been the tipping point where Randy's obsession with exposing himself to women took an evil turn. For a while, football staved this off and it sort of kept his baser impulses at, at bay. Once it was clear he wasn't going to play in the NFL, that's when things took a really dark turn. And then he would seek out women in the vicinity to sexually assault and then sometimes murder. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. Well, it sounds like he started out bad and just got worse. You know, it's funny that this case, a lot of people don't know about it. You know, when you're talking about serial killers, Ted Bundy, Green River Killer, and we'll talk more about this as the case unfolds, but a lot of people don't. Did you know about the case? I didn't know about the case, and I also thought it was really interesting how you were talking about his initial proclivities to expose himself, then eventually morphed into this violent, murderous tendency. And I was looking up some information on psychology today, and they talk about how um, men who expose themselves actually do it because of anxiety which I thought was really interesting, where they say that basically a man's penis is like his source of masculinity. And so when he's feeling anxious about his masculinity or really anything in his life, it all comes down to, well, are you a man? And so exposing himself, trying to get some kind of response of, wow, look at that. Look at that manhood. <laughs> Reinforces his mm -hmm. feelings of masculinity. And so that's why they do it, and that's how it's supposed to help minimize their anxiety. But all that to say that there are many ways to deal with anxiety. That is not one. That's not a preferred method of doing that. Well, and as we talked to the FBI profiler, uh, Kenneth Lanning, who basically said, you know, some 
you know, a lot of it, it's not super it's not like it's super rare to expose yourself. I mean, it's, it's not like everybody's doing it every day. Well, according to this but, article in Psychology Today, it's two to four percent of men in America have yeah, exposed themselves. And some escalate and some don't. Right. And so it's hard to know where. But we'll get more into that. Um, I want to start off by acknowledging for this story, I interviewed former Marion County District Attorney Chris Van Dyke. And also the senior writer for Sports Illustrated, John Wertheim, who wrote a really in-depth, long-form feature on the case called The I-5 Killer. I tapped into that for a lot in this story as a source. And also, although I didn't read it, Ann Rule's book on the case, and it's also called The I-5 Killer. I pulled some details from it. But uh, there's not a lot when you look at all of the Green River Killer stuff and all the, you know, Ted Bundy um, and other serial killers, there's really not a lot on Randy Woodfield when you compare it to the others. Um, what we do know is that um, he grew up in Salem, which is the state capital of Oregon. It's about 50 minutes from Portland. He was the youngest of three children. He had two sisters and his mom was a stay-at-home mom and his dad was an executive at the phone company. By all accounts, you know, you hear the story, he had a very normal childhood. But according to some reports, Woodfield's mother was controlling and his father pushed him into sports and his sisters were high achievers in school. One thing I will say, though, they haven't, you know, they don't want people talking about this case. And how can you blame them? Right. Right. And so they haven't been I don't think they've given any interviews. And I don't know in all the pieces that I read, I don't know where that actually comes from. But I, I think they, you know, they're the type of people that just don't want to talk about it. They want it to be gone. And, you know, you can't really blame them for that. So we can't really know what kind well, of child would they say? I mean, like I think about what would that interview be like? You might ask him about his childhood or you might ask him about, you know, was this surprising to you? Did you expect this to happen? I'm sure there's no satisfactory answer that they could give anyways. I mean, what would they want to say? Would they want to defend him? Probably not. Mm -hmm. But if they didn't defend him, would they feel like in some way they were like a traitor to their own family? I, that would be a really hard position to be put in, mm -hmm. to have a family member who, you know, did these kinds of activities and then, you know, have to decide whether or not you're going to talk about it publicly. Mm -hmm. One law enforcement person that I talked to didn't want to talk about the case, but helped me with the background because they said, you know, the family, you know, they just don't want to keep talking about this. And I can understand that. So not a lot to mine there as far as his childhood, which, you know, when we do these cases, we always love to do. But a huge red flag in the seemingly normal childhood was in high school. Woodfield was arrested after he was caught standing on a bridge exposing himself to females. His parents responded by getting him into counseling. And according to law officials, Newport High's coaches kept the situation quiet so he wouldn't get kicked off the team. At the time, it was mostly chalked up to a teen making a lapse in judgment. And then when Woodfield turned 18, his juvenile record was expunged. Woodfield was described as the all-American kid, and yet he was also kind of described as weird Randy or a little bit creepy. But isn't that most American kids? A little weird, a little creepy? Well, know. and coming from such a seemingly normal, you know, very, very middle class family, you know, his dad was an executive at the phone company. I mean, they were in church activities. You know, he seemed very self-involved and narcissistic when it came to his looks and craving the attention and spotlight. And Woodfield didn't stop 
He was arrested in the early 1970s for vandalism. He allegedly broke into his ex-girlfriend's apartment and trashed the place. There wasn't enough evidence to convict him. At Portland State University, he was arrested multiple times for indecent exposure. He was convicted twice. Even so, he was drafted by the Green Bay Packers in 1974. Now, this was his dream come true. He traveled to Wisconsin with high hopes, but it was short-lived. Woodfield attended a training camp, but that was it. He was cut from the team in 1975. Apparently, they caught wind of more than a dozen arrests for indecent exposure. After being cut from the team, Woodfield was devastated. He was a college dropout, and at 25, he had no money. He went from job to job with little prospects. At the same time, in early 1975, Portland police figured out that someone might be responsible for a series of attacks on women. The attacker was described as good-looking, athletically built, and armed with a knife. Now, this man would prey on women demanding oral sex after he'd run off with the woman's purse or wallet. So in March 1975, police put together this sting operation at the park where female officers would pose as, you know, just women, you know, going for a walk, hanging out in the park. And sure enough, the described suspect jumped out of the bushes, brandishing a knife, and demanded the undercover officer give him her money. That was Randy Woodfield. So Woodfield was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Unfortunately, he was paroled in 1979 after only four years. Apparently, he charmed his way into an A-plus report from a corrections division psychiatrist, and uh, he was released in 1979 where he worked as a bartender, and he would rent rooms from people. Just a side note, he loved sending photos of himself naked to women. In 1979, he sent a photo of himself to Playboy. His muscles were all oiled up, and he was chosen for the Playgirls Guy Next Door segment. <laughs> <laughs> and this is around the same time police say that he began to kill. So you can see him kind of ramping up. He goes mm -hmm. from the uh, exposing himself to then armed robbery, and then he goes away, and he's able to charm his way out. So, you know, even though he was creepy, he was still able to be charming. So, he was a ladies' man, yeah, whether they wanted him to be or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another thing that's going to trigger you, a trigger warning, he would drive his 1974 Champagne Edition Volkswagen Bug Ooh. up and down I-5. I I'm getting that car. I know. I remember you going I mean, you off hear about. it coming. I, I know. You were talking about Ted Bundy, remember, in, a, <laughs> in our Bundy episode, two-parter, about how he kept having this penchant for driving v Volkswagen Bugs. So anyway, in 1979, driving his Volkswagen Bug up and down I-5, he began holding up gas stations, ice cream shops, and homes. Police across Washington, Oregon, and California were baffled and didn't really talk to each other at first. Some victims were sexually assaulted, some were robbed, and some were robbed, sexually assaulted, and murdered. It wasn't the same M.O. at every place. Now, I talked with former Marion County Prosecutor Chris Van Dyke about the early days of the I-5 bandit, as he was originally called. My office and the Marion County Sheriff's Office to kind of collect the data to put their, their collective heads together and, and try to see if these things were in fact related, if so, how law enforcement could work together to try to apprehend someone. You know, this was this is the early 80s, so there, there was no Internet, no cell phones. It was very much a, an analog time, so communications were by phone and literally sending faxes between the agencies as it became kind of a, a collective recognition that, 
all of these various cases were probably committed by the same person. So it took a while for them to figure that out. Now, this is all happening up and down the I-5 corridor, which I think most folks know. But in case you don't, it's, you know, one of the longest freeway routes in the country. It is a scenic route that runs right along the Pacific Ocean down all three states. So it's it's a route that a lot of people travel all the way from kind of the northern border of Canada all the way to the southern border of Mexico. I actually did it a couple of years ago with my family. It's It's a really popular route for people to travel. So it's not surprising that somebody would commit crimes up and down I-5. It is somewhere that people go through multiple states. But do we know if he ever ventured off of I-5, if there are crimes that are kind of outside of that corridor that they've connected with him? No. And that was one of the things that helped them because all of the crimes were literally committed, you know, not more than two miles Mm. off of the freeway. But even though the MO was consistently changing, a pattern did emerge. The primary cases where law enforcement initially began to believe that the crimes were committed by a single person involved women working in stores. Uh, In the case of Marion County, where I worked, two women were working their way through college as nighttime janitors. So there are places where one or more women, usually one or two, were working at night alone, and an individual came in and uh, with a silver gun and a Band-Aid on his nose, and as you described, was tall and, you know, uh, athletic and not unattractive, committed robberies, sexual assaults, and in some cases actually murdered the victim. So I think it was those cases that, that kind of pulled these various agencies together and started the coordination to compare facts, compare descriptions. And from that, uh, other cases, which were not specifically of that profile, law enforcement began to look at as possibly connected. And some of those were ultimately connected at the time, and some of those were not connected until got decades later when DNA evidence became useful and um, hunches about the cases being connected were confirmed later with scientific evidence that, that was simply not available in the early 80s. It's funny how much it's mentioned that he was good looking. Yeah. I mean, I saw your face kind of turn, but it's it's I think that that's part of the case where it's like unexpected. And it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but in that particular case that he was describing where the, the two best friends, they were in college, they were cleaning um, the strip mall to make money, to put themselves through school, and they're about ready to be done. And then this guy comes in in that disguise, and he basically like takes them in a room and says, undress, sexually assaults them, shoots them both in the head. One of them pretends to be dead, and she could be slowly dying at this point. She ends up calling 911 because he takes off thinking that she's dead. Okay, so as one of the cops are approaching the area, he sees this guy who matches that description that she gave. And And he he doesn't pull him over. Well, he was thinking there's no way there's no physical way this this guy would have to be a performance athlete to get far enough away from the crime scene. But to turns be out, here, as it turns out, and he an, was. <laughs> and another thing that he did, he says he's this officer specifically remembers that man that he saw looking at him in the face, looking, making eye contact with him, like almost daring him to pull him over. Wow. So he just doesn't fit the what you would 
believe to be or what our impressions are of someone who just murdered somebody who's like under the radar. So ironic when they're like, well, he was wasn't a bad looking guy or he was a good looking guy or whatever. I mean, A, that's so subjective. Mm -hmm. How does that help with the description of anybody pinpointing this guy? Mm -hmm. Because what you might find attractive, I might not. Mm -hmm. But B, what does that have to do with the case? Why does it keep coming up? It doesn't matter whether he's attractive or not. He did things against these women's will. Well, because people want, I mean, they've done studies on this. You know, people want to believe that good-looking people don't do this type of thing, that it's really the 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 ogres and the Igors and the people who are just depraved and, like, you know, crawled out from under a rock <laughs> that do this, right? I'm like the opposite. I, I feel like it's the opposite. People who are... I don't know, at least in my experience, <laughs> people who think that they are... If you're good looking, don't even approach Kim. No, just, just <laughs> like, it tends to be people who think a lot of themselves, who think they can get away with these sorts of things, who think that, you know, have the bravado and to you're commit right. crimes. So I yes. guess it's not surprising to me that it's attractive people who often commit crimes. Yes, and that is absolutely spot on here. You are absolutely right. Another uh, clue was the geography the cases that I described where women were working in restaurants and buildings kind of spanned from Seattle, a little north of Seattle, down into Shasta County in California. So you know, I, I don't know how many miles it is, probably four or five hundred mile. And initially, the, the cases from Seattle, from Portland, Salem, down in Shasta County were the first cases that kind of come under this investigative umbrella and it expanded beyond that. So up and down I-5, you have these horrific crimes, scores of armed robberies, sexual assaults, attempted kidnapping, and then the murders. And these murders start to ramp up. And I'm going to just give you kind of a general timeline of the murders. On um, October 11th, 29-year-old Cherie Ayers was found in her Portland home. Now, Cherie was a former classmate of Woodfield's. She was raped, bludgeoned, and stabbed in the neck. Mm. They went to talk to Woodfield, but he wouldn't give a polygraph test, and his blood type didn't match that of the semen found inside the victim, so they had to let him go. On Thanksgiving Day that same year, 22-year-old Darcy Fix and 24-year-old Douglas Altig were found shot to death in their Portland home. A 32 caliber gun was missing from the scene, and Darcy had been going out with one of Woodfield's friends from Portland State University. But there was nothing tying Woodfield to the case. So on January 18th, 1981, 20-year-old Sherry Hull, now this is the one that I just talked about where they were the they were cleaning ladies. She was shot to death in that office building where she worked as a cleaner. Her best friend, Lisa Garcia, was also shot and sexually assaulted but survived by playing dead. And then on February 3rd, 1981, 14-year-old Janelle Jarvis and her mother, 37-year-old Donna Eckert, were found shot to death in their Shasta County home. Julie Reitz, 18, was found shot to death in, the Be- in her Beaverton home that she shared with her mother on February 15, 1981. She was likely killed close to midnight on Valentine's Day. It's incredible how quickly. I mean, it's just one after the other after the other. We have like a half dozen in a matter of like four months. Yeah. And in between all of that, he's like robbing different places. He shot one um, woman in the in the arm when he was robbing her and left her to die. He sexually assaulted another woman when she was in the restroom. I mean, all of these things, he ended up going back to another one of these gas stations. I mean, it's not it's, it's a lot of crimes happening. Right. So in March 1981, 
as police were investigating the murder of Julie Reitz. They went to talk to Woodfield because he was known to be an acquaintance of her. It's been reported that she had known Woodfield in his job as a bartender, and he had overlooked her fake ID and let her into that bar. But he denied knowing her. And it just so happened that a number of the victims had uh, gone to that bar on on several occasions. And Woodfield was not originally... Uh, contacted as a suspect or identified as a suspect. He was someone the police wanted to talk to because they thought he might know something. And uh, they started digging into his background and locating him. He was in Eugene at that time. They discovered that he had been involved in several cases for, you know, ranging from flashing individuals to actually sexual ass- attempted sexual assaults and had done time in the Oregon Penitentiary for it. I'm beginning to wonder what kind of psychological problems he may have had. And and when I say psychological problems, I mean like chemical imbalances that he was born with or some kind of genetic issues he may have been born with. Because when you're someone who is really athletic, really likable, really attractive. You wanted to say good looking. No, I'm just thinking of all the things that he has going for him in his life, right? He went to college. He was drafted by the NFL. I mean, he has what a lot of people would say was a dream childhood and early adulthood. And yet he went down this path that was violence and murder and just mayhem and complete disregard for any other human on the planet. That is not normal. (laughs) Like, that is not normal human behavior. And I think... You know, we don't know a lot about his childhood. It sounds like his childhood was relatively normal. And this, in this case, it makes me think this is not nurture but nature. There was something just wrong upstairs. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that's why when I started off with his childhood, there's not a lot to mine there. And even it's been 40 years and the family, you know, there's a lot to mine there with Ted Bundy. You know, right. Things come out. If there was yeah. something there, it probably would have come out by now. Yeah. And we talked about I talked with Chris about how Woodfield presented himself. I mean, he was you know, he grew up in the Oregon coast and was a uh, all state football player in high school. Uh, he went to Portland State and did really well at Portland State as a football player. He was ultimately drafted by the Green Bay Packers. Uh, you know, he was athletic, you know, about six feet tall. Um Good-looking guy by all descriptions. You know, he was uh, very popular as a bartender in Portland. On the face of it, not not someone that you would suspect would be involved in, you know, what ultimately been became serial killing. And do we know whether he killed people because he enjoyed it, whether he got off on murder in some way or they got off on the violence, or whether he killed people so they couldn't identify him to get rid of the witnesses? We don't know that for sure. They never did do like a psychoanalysis on him. So the veneer was chipping away. They started looking below the surface to see what was going on. Not only did he match the description to a T, he denied knowing the victim and refused a polygraph. He soon went from being a person of interest to a suspect. When Randy Woodfield was eventually arrested and held on a parole violation in Eugene, a photo lineup was done, and I believe there's about 20 different living victims that came to participate in a lineup. And it was at that point where, you know, it was fairly conclusive after all these various victims identified Randy Woodfield that he was, in fact, the person who was loosely being described as the I-5 killer. So I asked about what it was like for Chris as a prosecutor during this time as this case was unfolding. 
I have been communicating with Dave Bishop and David Kamenek, who were in Eugene, doing the surveillance and interviewing Woodfield and ultimately executing the search warrant. And it was in the middle of the night. <laughs> Dave Bishop called me and, and just literally breathlessly said, we have these phone records, and it is literally a map of the crimes of the I-5 killer. And I think it was at that point that we knew this is the guy. And it was confirmed with the later lineups and the, the victims identifying him as the assailant that we knew we, we, had, we had the person who was the I-5 killer. So I want to dive deeper into this evidence that they found. First, the phone records were a huge piece. Detective Bishop from the Beaverton Police Department obtained Randy Woodfield's phone records. Uh, he was making calls from phone booths up and down I-5 and charging it to his home phone. So in the, the old world of pay phones, your phone record would show that you made a call from a, a particular location at a specific time. And those times and locations connected directly to the cases along the corridor. So the phone records not only put him near all the crime scenes, but it also speaks to a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of hatred towards women. When he was traveling up and down I-5, he would call a woman that he had met in a bar or socially. He would hit on him on the phone call. He would be rejected, and then he would seek out women in the vicinity to sexually assault and then sometimes murder. So there was this rejection behavior that was really evident, and that was characteristic of most of the crimes he committed. Did they ever talk to a woman who accepted his advances? Well, he had um, some girlfriends. like Right, but I'm just wondering, like, if he was hitting on people in bars and then when he got rejected, he would go out and commit these crimes. Was there ever a time he wasn't rejected and maybe didn't commit a crime? I think that that's probably true. But in his case, I think that he just he it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think he wanted to use that. As an Because it wasn't just, as we'll get into a little bit later, it wasn't just the women that were rejecting him. It was other people, too. Mm, okay. So I think that that's where, like in my scene center, I tried to really set that up because I feel like he really wanted this adoration and this, you know, he, he didn't like to get hurt in football. Like he was a wide receiver and he, he would go to the edges. He wouldn't go in the middle because he didn't want to get hit. Well, it just feels like maybe he has this unquenchable appetite for adoration. I mean, he clearly got some mm -hmm. if he's a star football player and everybody says he's good looking and all this kind of stuff. Clearly, mm -hmm. he got some adoration, but it just was never enough. Well, and I think that, you know, he wouldn't say much when during different interrogations and things like that. But what he did say when he first got busted in 1975 after he was released in the park when he was, you know, he got 10 years and only served four, he blamed his oversexed drive on taking steroids. That's one of those things, though, where I feel like it will heighten your tendencies, but it's not going to make you into a rapist or a killer if you're not already tending to go that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a total excuse. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think he was trying to do that football player thing, like whenever he would charge with these indecent exposures, like, hey, I'm just a young man. I just can't help myself when, you know what, this goes beyond. Boys will be boys. Yes. Ugh. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get back to some of the other evidence that they found when they were executing that search warrant. One of the things was a, a 25 caliber bullet, which is 
anyone who knows ammunition at all, it, it is a very rare caliber. It was a 25 caliber revolver, and it's a rare ammunition. It was the same caliber that was uh, used in the two shooting victims, in my case, in Marion County. Uh, also, uh, rolls of white athletic tape in a gym bag of a similar kind that was described in you know most of these cases. So that tape was the same tape he would use to bind some of his victims and also wear across the bridge of his nose during his crime spree. They also found a 32 bullet in Woodfield's racquetball bag that matched the bullets that were found in the victims. And I asked Chris to kind of break down what the interrogation of Woodfield was like. Well, he was incredibly uh, cold, uh, very unresponsive. Uh, it took a great deal to get him to talk at all. He would admit nothing. He would initially try to charm the police because, you, you know, he was kind of a charismatic guy. But then once the questions became more pointed, uh, he would just close down. Never uh, in all of the interviews that occurred with Whitfield did he ever admit anything. He knew, you know, he'd done time. Uh, he knew better than to talk to the police and tell them anything, and he never did. So we've talked about the family a little bit. They've been very quiet about the case. According to case files, though, I guess the dad visited his son in prison after he was arrested, and he didn't stay long. Apparently, he walked out and said something to the effect that, quote, he's not the son I know, mm. and added that he wasn't going to help detectives put away his son, and no one from the Woodfield family has spoken since. So I asked Chris if he thought Woodfield had gotten sloppy or wanted to get caught, you know, with his victims. Some of them they could tie back to him. And and it seemed like in that span, that five-month span, where the majority of the murders on record that he did, it seems like, was this like a frenzy or what? I think he, he had committed so many crimes without getting caught that there's, there is an arrogance about behavior like this. And Chris says Woodfield rarely showed emotion, even when being interrogated for hours by detectives. Apparently, as they went into the horrors of his crimes, he would slick back his hair with both hands and smile. So an interesting point here is that Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway, uh, the Green River Killer, all confessed and talked in great lengths about their crimes as serial killers. And one of the reasons Woodfield's case maybe isn't as well known is that he still to this day says he was framed. We'll get more into that later. But Chris says, you know, after the lineup with Lisa Garcia, where she identified Woodfield and he spent some time with her, everything changed for him as a prosecutor. I think the... the emotional part of this for me personally started when I traveled down to Eugene for the lineup. I, I had met the, the surviving victim, uh, but it wasn't until I went, went to the lineup and, and saw her reaction when she identified Randy Woodfield. And I actually then drove her back to Salem from Eugene, which is about an hour long drive that I, I think the the, the magnitude of the crime in human terms began to really sink in. That you know, here's here's a victim trying to work her way through college, and someone comes into places where she's working with her best friend, sexually assaults both of them, shoots them both in the back of the head, and she plays dead as her best friend dies next to her on the floor. And so, spending that time with her and and realizing at a you know, very fundamental level what she had gone through kind of shifts it from 
purely a intellectual exercise into a, a pretty emotional one. And that kind of carried through in the trial. I would love to know Woodfield's response when he realized that the woman that he thought he had left for dead wasn't dead at all and was coming back to haunt him and put him in prison. I'm sure he just denied it. I'm sure he just, but yeah, I mean, I wonder. I mean, he probably just looked in a mirror and just was like, oh my gosh, I'm so good looking. I mean, <laughs> he that's just kind of my impression of him from everything that I've read. I'm and so good looking, at. I'll get away with anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So an interesting uh, tidbit in this case, they they have this guy, over 20 victims have come forward and said, that's the guy. They now know we're looking at the I-5 killer. And so they're kind of like, now what? You might think that a puffed up prosecutor, you know, would try to strong arm their way into prosecuting this case to make a name for themselves. And as it turned out, this couldn't have been further from the truth. At the time, Chris was a rookie prosecutor. There were about 20 different law enforcement agencies from three states uh, after the victims uh, identified Woodfield and we had the phone records. Everybody knew that Woodfield was the guy, but nobody wanted to take the case. Um, because of the profile of this and, and the publicity, everyone was really nervous to be the first one to step up and actually charge Woodfield. And I, I was following the lineup at a conversation with Dave Bishop and, uh, uh, and uh, David Kamenak. And they sat me down and they said, if you don't take this, allow us to arrest him and take him back to Salem, we're never going to talk to you again. We're going to kick your ass. <laughs> We've got a solid case. Nobody's taking it. Step up and be the guy. And I said, arrest him. We, we literally decided um, in Eugene that we were going to be the first jurisdiction to do it because nobody else would. But why? Why? This is totally counterintuitive to what I thought you were going to say. Oh, I thought I know. you guys were going to be it, fighting it, over who gets to take it, take it on. That is kind of the, the, absolutely the intuitive response you would have to this. But a case of this profile had not come along in Oregon in, in, in a lifetime. And people knew that they had him and they knew that that he was going to be incarcerated. Nobody wanted to take the risk of losing a case like this. Yeah, I think that's the difference. If this had happened in New York or L.A. or even Seattle, there probably would be plenty of hungry prosecutors who'd want to take it on. But you're talking about Oregon in the 80s, where they haven't dealt with a lot of these cases. And could you imagine the public outrage if they lost it? Yeah, but the thing is, is that he had so many crimes up and down I-5. You know, you could have Seattle. You could have. Right. You but know, nobody was taking it on. Nobody was. <laughs> so the Woodfields trial began in the summer of 1981. He was charged with Hull's murder, Garcia's attempted murder, and two counts of sodomy. This case had an extremely high profile, as you might imagine. You know, four states have been kind of on high alert, warning people over their safety for months and this person was in try, being tried in Salem, so the media attention was extraordinary. Again, this is before the Internet, but the courtroom was largely full of reporters. There was a metal detector to get in. It was the top of the news and all the, the news stations in Oregon. I was 31 years old. I had been elected when I was 29, and I had not tried a murder case before. Mm. Uh, so I was uh, a young rookie, and and probably the, the, the most important homicide case in, in many decades in Oregon was trying this against the, the best defense attorney in, in the state. So it was, it, was, it was a high pressure. To say it was high pressure would be understatement. 
Now, in the Ted Bundy trial, he had, like, fans in the audience, right? Mm-hmm. And girls who would dress up as his type. Mm-hmm. Was there any of that here? Um, I'm not sure if it was to the extent of Bundy, but since he's been in prison, you know, he has had pen pals. Some of those letters have been sold on in auction. And, in fact, one of the victims had – she went to – knew him since like the second grade Hmm. and had written letters to him in in high school. She wasn't one of the, you know, weird fans, but um, I'm sure women came out of the woodwork. But Chris did say, even though he was a rookie prosecutor, that Marion County had the best case against Woodfield. We had a living victim. Uh, We had the bullet from the gym bag to match the bullet from our victims. It was a good case. And so because of that, we decided that, you know, let's go. So one of the pieces of evidence tying Woodfield to the case seemed so bizarre to me. He had this thing where he would wear a Band-Aid or tape over his nose. That was one of the, in addition to being good looking and athletic and all of that, the person would wear this tape on their nose, which just seemed really bizarre. It's actually athletic tape is what he used, and it was white. And we actually, during the course of the trial, we had interviewed Randy Woodfield's cellmate when he was at the Oregon State Penitentiary. And he testified that as they're talking about how they got caught in their crimes and how do you get away with crimes, and the, the stuff that convicts talk about sitting in a cell together, there's a long, several long conversations about how do you distract people's attention when you're committing a crime. And his cellmate said, well, get, you can do things as simple as putting a Band-Aid on or a piece of tape, and people will fixate on that piece of tape, and they will not pay attention to what you actually look like. That this distraction is an amazing disguise, because you can wear it in public. It's not like wearing a Nixon mask. You can walk down the street with it, but when you're in this tense situation committing a crime, that people will look at that tape and not look at your other features. And that was absolutely the case. I'm a little bit surprised by that because so far I've been imagining this person who is just super reactive, who doesn't really have control over himself and is just going off doing whatever impulsive thing he feels like doing. But now it sounds like, no, he was really thoughtful about this and he put some planning into it. So it's kind of changing my mind about him a little bit, just about how and why he committed these crimes. Yeah, I think that he's not the MO was constantly changing. Mm. You know, between his victims, what he would do, what he was after, the tape. Which is maybe why he got away with it for as long long as as he did. did. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, during the trial, it was revealed that Woodfield loved calling potential women all over in Washington, Oregon, and California. He made thousands of calls. And they were all documented for police to contrast and compare with all the robberies and murders and sexual assaults. And for some younger listeners who might not have a clue as to what this is, back in the day, if you were on the road and wanted to make a call, and especially if you wanted to make a long-distance call, you had a pocket full of change or a calling card. So you'd go into the phone booth and you'd dial the operator and they would connect you and you would bill it to another, another number. So he made these calls when he was on the road, and if he was rejected by a woman, that made him angry. And Chris says within minutes he would find a victim or victims. So in court, um, some examples were revealed. Like, for example, in that case where he uh, killed the mother and the daughter, apparently before that, he called his sister in California. And according to those calling records, he wanted to have coffee with her. His sister rejected him, saying her husband didn't want him around. And soon after, then he committed the murders. 
Wow. That has yeah. to be horrible for his sister, too, to have that on her conscience, to think that in any way she could have played a role in what happened. I mean, obviously, she couldn't have prevented it. She had no idea it was going on. Yeah, but, no. But to be yeah. wrapped up in the case and have yeah. your, your phone call brought into it, that's going to be really tough. Yeah. And then another example was, you know, he killed someone after he had made this big Valentine's Day party at this hotel and nobody showed up. <laughs> and that's then like poetic so- justice. Well, not really, because then he went and took it out on one of his victims. And so this rejection piece is like whenever he would be rejected, he would go and take it out on these women. Like he just refuses to accept it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So according to Ann Rule, who I guess was at the trial for the whole time, she picked up on this story right away back in the 80s. And I think her book came out in like 1985 or something like that. Anyway, she would say that when Woodfield took the stand in his defense, that he spoke softly with his arms crossed, looking nothing like the star athlete. She would write in her book later, quote, Randy Woodfield had been touted in the media as a massively muscled professional athlete. The man in person seemed strangely diminished, not a Superman after all. He looked, if anything, humbled, a predatory creature brought down and caged in mid-rampage. Mm. So I asked Chris about the significance of all the exposure incidents in Woodfield's background, getting back to his kind of psychopathy, pointing to the fact that uh, one of the signs of a serial killer, uh, but you never know, is, you know, this exposing himself to people. You don't know if they're going to escalate or not. The FBI actually assisted in trying to draw up a profile of him from the descriptions and his behavior. And, you know, other, other than... You know, the, the details of, you know, playing professional football. In broad strokes, his profile was pretty accurate, that he was sociopathic, that he had, you know, no, no sense of guilt, remorse, or empathy, uh, that he was going to be cold, and he was going to be non-communicative, and that there would have been elements of this behavior probably would have been manifested in directly related ways, in this case, exposure. So, the, the broad strokes profile that was done was spot on. He did not raise any psychological or insanity defenses, so we we actually didn't do any particular profiling. Uh, there was a pre-sentence report done in which he was described as a as a sociopath, simply based on evidence from the cases, but no no detailed psychological examination by a psychologist or psychiatrist was ever was ever conducted. We got a lot of armchair psychiatrists here, and I think we all know he's just not right upstairs. I mean, mm-hmm. is there really any more that needs to be said? Yeah, and I don't think he would ever allow himself to give any details or information. Like, he, he's, that book is closed. He says to this day that he was framed and, you know, he's trying to throw shade all over the place. And Does he say who he thinks framed him or why or how? Or I mean, it I just mean, seems... He, he, does, he mentions this guy I can't remember, and then he's just like, uh, and the corruption, the system was corrupt and oh, stuff, okay. you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, the jury was not buying anything. The trial lasted a little over a month, and they came back with a guilty verdict within about three and a half hours. So in June of 1981, he was 30 years old, and he was convicted on all counts. With no death penalty option in Oregon, he was sentenced to a prison term of life plus 90 years. That December, 35 more years were added to a sentence when a jury in Benton County, Oregon, convicted him of sodomy and weapons charges tied to another attack in a restaurant bathroom. 
But what about all those other cases? District attorneys up and down the I-5 corridor had a decision to make. Most of the agencies and, and, and DA's offices that looked at this said Whitfield's never getting out of prison. It cost Marion County a fortune to try this thing. Uh, people are safe. He's off the streets. He's locked up and will die in prison. So decided not to, you know, for better or worse, decided not to invest in, in uh, cases in their jurisdictions. It's still surprising, though, because usually they say, you know, even though he's in jail, we want closure for the victims. We want justice for the victims and their families. But in this case, apparently nobody felt like that was necessary. I think that the cost just like cost a ton of money in Marion County, and you know the the vic- I mean the victims' families, the victims themselves that survived, you know maybe didn't want to be dragged through it all again, and so they just decided, you know, collectively like, hey, you know, we know he's not getting out, but if he does have an opportunity to come up for parole, you know, we will then pursue some of these cases. But as time marched on and evidence collected from his crimes uh, were analyzed for DNA. A number of the cases out of Portland and Beaverton in particular, the DNA has conclusively tied him to those crimes. And I think that's that's the reason that even if there were possibly a parole, that he's not going anywhere. Um, I think it's generally recognized law enforcement that there literally are dozens of cases in which DNA is connected him. And I, and I just don't have the total figure. I don't know that anyone is actually, maybe you can figure it out. I'd be interested to see how many there are now because they seem to be you know, popping up across the, that I-5 geography. And maybe that's why we don't hear about him like Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer because there isn't this murder book of mm-hmm. all of the crimes put together, there isn't a number put on it unless have you figured out a number? Well, when I was researching this episode, you know, some you know, people have reported that Woodfield murdered 40 plus people, but a source close to the case said definitively with physical or circumstantial evidence, they can link Woodfield to 30 criminal episodes. These episodes include sex crimes, robbery, and murder, but may not be representative or inclusive of each episode. So In this 30 crime count, there are 35 victims. Seven victims were murdered. One was the victim of an attempted murder. 20 were victims of a sex crime. 24 were victims of a robbery. And 11 of those victims are included in the 20 sex crimes victims. DNA directly links Woodfield to only five cases. That's one sex and robbery crime and four murders. And then DNA circumstantially links Woodfield to another murder case. So there's a lot of crimes that he did. I know that sounds really confusing and like, but I mean, there's a lot that he did. It happened in the 80s. I think the cold case has a book that they put together on him. But again, it's like solving cases that are still open, not necessarily to you know, bring more hell and brimstone or whatever that saying is to Randy because he's going to be in prison, you know, and there's no death penalty. And so is he still in jail today? Is he still alive today? Oh, yeah. He's totally still still alive today. But before we wrap up, I wanted to circle back to my interview with John Wertheim. He was he's the senior writer uh, for Sports Illustrated because the angle of sports is such a huge angle in this case, just because we've talked about it so many times about how he was the All-American and stuff like that. And there were some tidbits within that story that kind of struck me as as interesting in this case. I found it really interesting when uh, John 
Wertheim, when he describes a conversation, and I had this in the scene setter that an NFL scout had with the uh, Portland State University coach as he's watching Woodfield play. Even though Woodfield was known for how fast he was on the field as a wide receiver and cuts on a dime, hustles, good hands, those are some of the um, descriptors that they gave to him when he was being considered for the NFL, he didn't like to get hit. And that coach would described, describe him as being afraid to get hit. And as we di- dissect Woodfield, it seemed like pretty pointed criticism in football when getting hit is just sort of part of what you sign up for. And I wondered if it spoke to Woodfield's character. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think more than anything, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's almost code for cowardice. I mean, it's, it's someone who shies away from physical contact. And I, I don't think it's selfishness in the sense of, uh, you know, putting yourself before team. I think it's almost, he's, he's afraid to get hit. He doesn't like pain. He doesn't want to get, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, it, it's a, a real condemnation of, of his appetite and uh, threshold for, for physical contact. So it's not something a coach would normally advertise. Uh, I mean, unless the, the guy was brutally honest, it, it's not a trait you really want in a, in a wide receiver. Um, and it's, I, I think it's pretty remarkable that a, a coach, I mean, it's like commend the coach for his honesty, but it's a, it's a strange thing to say about one of your players who has aspirations of getting drafted. It also, though, fits with what I was reading in Psychology Today about why some people will expose themselves, and it's to prove their masculinity. Mm -hmm. So if you actually have this cowardice in you that you're trying to cover up or deny, it would make sense that you would then do things like expose yourself to counteract that. Yeah. And then, you know, John makes a really interesting point that Woodfield was a ticking time bomb, and football seemed to, for a short time, keep him on track. Of went into the story thinking um, this was going to be another coddled athlete who was, you know, his his defects and flaws were overlooked by coaches and teammates who cared more about keeping him eligible than doing the right thing, which which we see, you know, re- regrettably uh, is, is fairly a common theme in sports. It it didn't really happen that way. I mean, I think this was someone who just, uh, you know, you, you meet him once and he seems like a nice enough guy and he's a good looking guy and he can carry a conversation. And he was part of the fellowship for Christian athletes. He seems sort of like a you know pr- pretty normal college kid. And then he also had this, this dark side and this strange side. And it first surfaced, you know, before he got to college when he was uh, a teenager. And then it seemed to intensify. And I, I mean, something that, you know, I, I put this out there in the story is that for a while, football staved this off, and this guy had these ambitions to be a football player, and it was a, a distraction, and it sort of kept his uh, his baser impulses at, at bay. And then once football was no longer something he could pursue, once it was clear he wasn't going to play in the NFL, that's when things took a really dark turn. I want to end on one thing. When I first started the interview with Chris Van Dyke, you know, the prosecutor, who I really enjoyed talking to. Just the elephant in the room. His dad is Dick Van Dyke. Oh, he is. Got, here's the one time. I'm always trying to connect people with the same name. And here's the one time I don't jump to it. I was waiting for you to do it. You I let thought, me know. This is no. too obvious. It can't be. It's too obvious. Well, so I, I forgot to ask him in the beginning of the interview, OK, what are you doing now? So I could introduce him properly. So at the end of the interview, I was asking him if he was still a prosecutor. And I wanted to include what he said 
about our criminal justice system because I think it's totally spot on, in my opinion, and I just really enjoyed his perspective. After one term as DA, I had uh, I'd gone to enough homicide scenes and dealt with enough tough cases. I actually went and worked for Nike for almost 20 years, first as a lawyer and then in, in marketing communications. And now I'm just I'm doing consulting work for conservation organizations and outdoor companies. I, I, no doubt you have seen what a lifetime of immersing yourself in these horrible cases and tragedies does to your view of humanity and of life. And um, I still have a lot of friends who worked in law enforcement, and there's a lot of them continue to struggle with a very negative views of people and and life in general. And I and I did what I could. I, I ran to kind of correct some of the the problems that were going on in Marion County at the time. I got them done, and I was ready to move on. You know, it's just uh, the criminal justice system is, in in my view anyway, ill-equipped to do with to deal with the complexities of what drives criminal behavior. You know, it's, I describe it as uh, dealing with brain surgery with a sledgehammer and a chainsaw. Um, you, know, you, you just don't have the tools to deal with uh, the problems of addiction and broken families and um, poverty and race and all the other things that go into this complicated stew of criminal behavior. And um, I just finally got tired of it dealing with the clumsy tools we had. You know, in the case of Woodfield, that was that's a no-brainer, right? You get this guy off the street. Um, but those these sorts of cases are a small fraction of what the day-in and day-out uh, cases are in law enforcement. They're just, there's a lot of just tragedies that, but for some other intervening force, could have been avoided. And, you know, those are the, those are the cases you see every day. Uh, if you only work to put people like Woodfield in prison, that'd be really easy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how people do it, but I think, you know, we're seeing the results of the system not working today. I mean, with all well, the yeah. protests and the defund the police efforts and, you know, I, I think in another part of that, not just the defund the police, but like, let's get social workers in there. Let's have social servants agencies as part of this process that the criminal justice system shouldn't just be crime and punishment. There needs to be a social service rehabilitation effort that happens alongside it that just hasn't been. Well, and I mean, he's a prosecutor, and I think a lot of people within the framework of law enforcement feel the same way. Right. Like the system is broken. How do we fix it? You know, how do we we can't have police be the last line of defense when somebody's in crisis. And and I think that, you know, us doing the podcast, at least for me personally, telling these stories, what happened? How how it's not just in a vacuum that this happens. Right. You how know? did we get here? How what did we get here? Childhood like where did things go wrong? Where might we have been able to change things before we got yeah. to this point? Yeah. So I just felt like he did such a great job of kind of, kind of summing up, mm-hmm. you know, where we're at. And it is brain surgery and we are dealing with it with like a sledgehammer. I hope we can get to the point where, you know, we can start putting away that that tool and really getting in there and I don't know. Having more fine-tuned equipment to work with. Yes. So what do we have for next week? Yeah, this next one is going to have so many twists and turns. So it's in the 1930s. A bunch of people are partying at this beach house when all of them wind up murdered. 
and there's a man and a woman, a couple, who are arrested for the crime, but only one of them will wind up paying the price. This is a really interesting story, so make sure you're subscribed to Scene of the Crime so that you get notified every time a new episode drops. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the Scene of the Crime.